0: up on today's show tis the season is there a formula behind the christmas music that ends up at the top of the charts year after year after year we'll find out supply chain issues Heard cornflakes are an issue what else has been affected as we try and get the uh, christmas meals made and how mrs claus has evolved over the years Speaking of Christmas music, we're going to have a really interesting discussion here. We're going to chat right now with Jonathan Hodgers, who's an adjunct research fellow of music from Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland. Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Merry Christmas.
1: Oh, well, thank you very much. Very, very grateful to be on. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, This is a really interesting talk because we all know, I mean, there's so, Christmas music just, it's a never-ending topic of discussion. You could talk about it for hours, but I like kind of the work that you've done in taking a look at what makes successful Christmas music, lasting Christmas music. Now, is is there a universal set of qualities that we can point to and say, hey, that's what makes a successful Christmas song?
1: There is and there isn't. There's some common themes that, crop up in Christmas music quite regularly but none of them are essential so you'll regularly hear in the lyrics talk of romantic relationships, the big theme good cheer and optimism are common moods that are struck and domesticity and comfort are very regular themes, songs for charities and being charitable as well and thinking of others, they come up regularly but aren't what you'd call essential and musically speaking you'd usually have songs in a major key mm-hmm. you'd usually have fairly predictable structures slow to moderate pace accessible melodies so that it's easier for a lot of people to sing along but all of that stuff isn't again essential
0: every year there's a new christmas hit this year we're talking about elton john and ed sheeran they seem to be the ones that have broken through this year um yeah but a lot of these hit that come around year to year don't endure, right? What is it that makes some right. songs I mean, we're still listening to Bing Crosby, we're still listening to Paul McCartney. Some of them just never go away. Do you have any idea why some of them just become part of Christmas?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a great question. There's probably as many answers to that question as there are songs that I would apply <laughs> to. I'd say there's I'd say there's several reasons for why any given song becomes a, a Christmas Evergreen. I wonder as well. It could be also that because they're tied to a season that recurs every year, yeah. that we're refamiliarized with them regularly. I would say a lot of would-be pop classics actually get lost because there's no reason for them to be repeated after their initial short run. And Christmas is several weeks a year where there's demand for a particular type of music, so the songs literally come back into season. So the, the repeat exposure almost certainly helps them sink in.
0: And the tie to Christmas, I mean, we all get these feelings around Christmas, and we all know songs can transport us and take us back and trigger things, right? Music has that power, so those two things seem to work
1: hand in hand pretty well. Sure, that's right, yeah, nostalgia as well, is such a big part of Christmas music as well.
0: Um, When you take a look at, uh, you know, I mean, we could talk about different kinds of music, but is there one genre, because, I mean, you've got got blues Christmas, you've got country Christmas, you've got pop Christmas, you've got metal Christmas, is there one genre that seems to crank out more hits than another?
1: There is probably yeah, there is like you said, you can have Christmas music really in any genre. But when you look at some of the rankings and the you know the lists of some of the most popular and enduring Christmas songs, they tend to gravitate towards the middle of the road. They're sort of pop rock hybrids. It's never too extreme, you know. It's right. never a full blown country song necessarily, or you know, a full blown metal song. It's it's sometimes quite synthy or sometimes it's glam rock on this side of the Atlantic, for example. There's a lot of glam rock that has stuck around uh, like you know, from the 70s. Yeah, there's a band called Slade. Ah, yes. That song. Yeah, maybe yeah, Merry Christmas, everyone. That uh, That's hung around a lot. There's another song by uh, Wizard called I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day. That's huge over here all the time. I don't know if it's the same in Canada. There are. There definitely are. You're absolutely right.
0: I like, You've probably never heard of The 12 Days of Christmas by Bob and Doug McKenzie, right?
1: I'm afraid I haven't. Yeah, no. see,
0: and that's that's one that all Canadians know and love. It's a it's a it's <sighs> a couple of guys that were on a Canadian TV show that did this spoof of Twelve Days of Christmas. That it, it's just legendary. Okay. But but like you say, it depends on where their audience is. Of course, music. I mean, I think typically you've got almost traditional Christmas songs, you know, and and spins on them, Jingle Bell Rock, stuff like that. But then there's also other ones like John Lennon. Uh, you know, there's a message behind that. There's been some others. Father Christmas by the Kinks has a bit of a message to it as well. So, sure. I mean, almost like protest songs that are Christmas songs.
1: Yeah, it's it's strange that that crops up fairly regularly. Like you said, there's that John Lennon song, obviously, and, and the Kinks track. And then there's the Band-Aid song as well. Yeah. It was enormous. And, um... Oh, um there's a couple of others there's um I'm trying to think of his name Rob thomas uh, a New York Christmas was another one of those songs that's very socially conscious, yeah, and really thinking uh, trying to think outside outside yourself and and look out to to society more uh, more broadly yeah, it is a curious aspect of Christmas music that it really does facilitate that almost but, protestish
0: but there's fertile ground for that because there are a lot of people that dislike. A lot of the traditional aspects of Christmas, especially the commercialization of it, right? And these sort of speak yeah, to yeah. that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think there's there's definitely a, a, almost a subgenre of Christmas music that it's not quite anti Christmas music, but it's it's more perhaps melancholy or a little bit more pensive. Yeah, and isn't quite as as you say, commercialized. It's maybe a little bit more realistic and a little bit more forthright about what Christmas is really like for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of them endure too. Um, Jonathan, what time is it in in Dublin right now? It's
1: 20 to 6 now. 20 to 6. So you're
0: well into Christmas Eve. I I can't thank you enough for taking some time out uh, this late afternoon, early evening to chat with us. I appreciate it so much.
1: Oh, well, I can't thank you enough for having me on. It's a real treat. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you very much, Jonathan, and Merry Christmas.
1: Thank you, same to you, no, thank you very much.
0: You bet that's Jonathan Hodgers, who is an adjunct research fellow of music at Trinity College in Dublin that just if if somebody said to me when I'm you know what would be a really cool job title for you, an adjunct research fellow of music at Trinity College in Dublin might just be it. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. Hey Sarah, did you find that tune? Uh, he was talking about one that's pretty big in bit- Britain. I've heard it here. Um, if you haven't heard it, Slade, um, doing, um, what's it called, Sarah? Merry Christmas, everyone.
1: Yeah. If I grab the right one, it's Merry Christmas, everyone.
0: Merry Christmas, everyone, by Slade. Let's play a bit of that. Born to the Break. We'll be back right after this. Follow so- talking about this earlier, and I don't know if anybody else has run into this, and my wife has spent the last two or three days trying to find cornflakes because she makes that Christmas wife saver. I'm sure you've heard of that. It's a very popular thing. Basically, it's something you make the day before, and then you just pop it in the oven on Christmas morning, so you don't have to worry about making something. Uh, but I, if I if I remember correctly, the top, like the crust on the top, is made out of cornflakes, which are apparently impossible to find right now. She went to like four or five places. And uh, this morning when we were talking about a people texting me and saying that same thing with um, Rice Krispies. Extremely hard to find. We know there's issues with the supply chain, but I'm not sure what's going on with cereals. Let's see if we can find out. We're going to chat with Sylvain Charlebois, who is the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. We've talked with him before. Merry Christmas, Sylvain. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Hey, Merry Christmas.
0: What's going on with cereal? Why can't we find cornflakes? What's happening?
2: Kellogg's was on strike for a few weeks in the United States. So, it's a different story. I know a lot of people want to blame supply chains and COVID and all of that, but it was actually a strike uh, affecting Kellogg's, and and that's why we've seen shortages of Rice Krispies and, and cornflakes. But here's uh, here's the good news: the strike is over. <laughs> it, it was actually it ended last week, so we're expecting uh, Corn Flakes to be back in uh, in Canada probably. I would say uh, just before New Year's or so. So hang in there, hang in there. It's You'll get your okay. Corn Flakes and your Rice Krispies for sure.
0: Now you mentioned the supply chain line, and we've talked so much about that in the last several months. All kinds of issues with this, that, and the other thing. Are there particular Christmas goodies or Christmas products we typically buy from the grocery stores that have been uh, adversely affected this year that you've noticed?
2: Are you a big fan of candy
0: canes? I mean, I I can take them or leave them.
2: (laughs) You know, we're short on on candy canes these days. Really? Um, Yeah. uh, So uh, some manufacturers in the United States can't get sugar. So anything overseas to get ingredients, it's been difficult, um, and uh, that's, that's really because of COVID. Uh, with, with Omicron and new protocols, uh, it's really tough for for transportation companies to really predict how long it will take to move things around. You got some drivers uh, going in isolation. Yeah. Uh, there's lots going on right now. I think everyone actually understands how Omicron affects people, but you need people to operate a supply chain, and that's kind of what's going on right now.
0: What? Uh, what about what happened in BC? And we know all the the highways that were derailed for a while. They're up and running for essential now. But um, did that set things back and cause some problems for Christmas?
2: Not really. I okay. mean, I, I, I must say, I mean, what happened in BC? It is nothing short of a miracle. I actually thought that we would be out for that connection with the port of Vancouver. I thought we would uh, we would be out for a long time. I think we were out for ten days or something, and they basically uh, they were hauling uh, trains that were three kilometers long to catch up. Uh, so you can see that really uh, companies uh, have done a really good job making sure that uh, that business uh, continued through the Port of Vancouver. I mean, every year the Port of Vancouver sees about $12 billion worth of food going in and out. Wow! So you probably heard in the news over the last 24 hours, McDonald's in Japan uh, are out of french fries. Canadian yeah. french fries that's that's due to the to bc floods uh, essentially so you you we for a while we couldn't get potatoes to the port and that's why they're short right now
0: interesting how are we looking in terms of I mean we know it's been tight and there's all kinds of different issues and like you said it's almost seemed to be a perfect storm it's one thing after another just straining our supply chains um how are we yeah. looking heading into 2022 is there any improvement in sight
2: I think it's going, to be, it's going to be messy for a while. Um, I mean, you're, you're trying to restart a, an economy while deal, dealing with a pandemic, yeah. and uh, what we're seeing right now across the country are nervous governments, uh, not sure exactly how to deal with Omicron. We don't have we don't have a whole lot of data. So right now, uh, what we're seeing, say in Quebec and Ontario, we're seeing governments really. Trying to keep people uh, home as much as possible, which is not uh, great for business, yeah. uh, obviously, but you want to keep people safe because you don't know much about this. Variant, uh, and I, you know what? I actually think there's going to be more variants. I hate to say this, but I think the year 2022 will be the year will be, uh, that will befriend, uh, the pandemic. Essentially, we're going to accept the fact yeah. that this is, this is here to stay. Yeah. And we need to run supply chains based on the fact that we need to continue with, with our business. And, and so this is going to help. Supply chains, uh, some normalcy, accepting the fact that we need to keep people safe while people while people are working is going to be essential.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think we're going to we're getting closer and closer to that Sylvan, where we're going to have to start to make some decisions about how we deal with this going forward. But like you say, it's going to be a rocky ride until we get to whatever this looks like. Um, always a pleasure chatting and getting an update on what's happening. Uh, Merry Christmas to you. We'll chat in the new year. May- Merry Christmas to you too as well. Take care. Thanks very much. That is Sylvain Charlebois, who's director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. I'm speaking of Santa Claus and Christmas Eve. We're going to switch gears a little bit here. This is going to be a fun conversation, I think. We're going to chat about, not Santa, but Mrs. Claus. Joining us, we have Maura Ives, who's a professor of English at Texas A&M University. Maura, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us, and Merry Christmas. Merry
3: Christmas to you, too, and thank you for having me.
0: Uh, Really interesting piece you put together. I was reading it. um, Basically, you took a look at Mrs. Claus and her journey through literature, and that's how we learn about so many of these great stories. But you found that she wasn't just sort of Santa's wife. She wasn't just there to fill out the story. There was more than that to, uh, to Mrs. Claus, and she really sort of reflected the realities of the time, right? Yes, yes, she did.
3: I found that to be really surprising, actually. I didn't expect to see Mrs. Claus becoming, um, both in positive ways and negative ways, um, kind of a personification of the uh, debate over women's rights. So that was um, a really fun part of the research.
0: And and sort of one of the things that you point out is the fact that when we talk about, and this continues to this day, especially in my house anyway, Christmas doesn't happen (laughs) without... Mrs. Claus or Mrs. Gannam at my house. I mean, the, the the pivotal role that women play in making Christmas what we know and love about Christmas.
3: Yeah, I really enjoyed reading that because, or, you know, reading it as I looked back at the 19th century um, items I was, was working with, um, I think we tend often to assume that lots of things about the holidays are recent. Right, um, yeah. And that there was a time when um, people didn't have so much work to do, and especially when women weren't getting to the holiday season or the end of it and feeling absolutely exhausted. And so I was delighted to find, well, that's <laughs> not perhaps the right word. Um, it's always been tough. Um, but it was interesting to me to find that even in the 19th century, um, you had a magazine editor saying to women, "Yeah, maybe it's it's time to simplify a little bit. Let's, let's not be exhausted. <laughs> when we get to the end of things,
0: <laughs> so we all re- we all understand the work that Mrs. Claus put in, but ultimately, at the end of the day, um as was pretty commonplace you know back in the olden days, and unfortunately, you know longer than that, she was left at home when Santa Claus ultimately went out on his adventure and and delivered all the gifts and stuff, Mrs. Claus was left to, to wait at home, right
3: right, not always. Um, every once in a while, somebody figured out, some writer figured out a way for her to um, go with him, deliver the toys, have some fun, get away from the North Pole, where there doesn't seem to be a lot happening no. other than, um, you know, the, the work involved in Christmas. But even that, you know, was, was uh, a topic of, of, you know, some disagreement among the writers who, who told the story, um, even the ones who were eager to give her a chance to get away felt that they had to, you know, manufacture something that gave her permission to escape the house. Um, She either had to have a chat with Santa and explained why she wanted to go somewhere um, or, you know, she would discover that he had forgotten something and the children weren't going to be happy unless she went ahead and, and took a sleigh ride. So that, that I found interesting that, some writers um, found a way for her to, you know, kind of get past yeah. um, doing all the work and not getting the glory, but it was still hard to do, and again, not everybody supported that.
0: Generally speaking, has the role of Mrs. Claus, at least, in, you know, in terms of literature, has it evolved over the years? Has it changed uh, over time?
3: That's a hard question to answer that that's something that I'm going to be looking at as I you know keep working on this project, but thus far, I have to say we we haven't gotten very far beyond the themes and the plot lines right. yeah. of the nineteenth century um, There's a couple reasons for that I think first of all, Mrs. Claus was not part of Clement Moore's account of a visit from St Nicholas, so she was an add on and you know a logical add on is people were trying to figure out what you know. What what must be going on in the North Pole? There has yeah. to be a toy workshop, et cetera. Um, and again, not everybody liked the add-on. There's at least one person in the 19th century who wrote a piece complaining that you know she, she wasn't original. So when you're trying to <laughs> add something on to a narrative that's so powerful, yes, um, it's it's not easy. And we have to find a way to to work her in um, without alienating the readers who have certain expectations about that story. And so where we are is, as far as I know, we don't have a depiction of Mrs. Claus in literature or film that really has captured the popular imagination in the way that, say, the story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer has. Right. Um, He wasn't in the original poem either, right, but... Everybody kind of accepts that story, and and he's become part of of the narrative. Mrs. Claus is part of it. People acknowledge her. You know, there's no argument about whether there's a Mrs. Claus now, but we're kind of still figuring out, you know, what that means. Um, We don't have a definitive idea of what her name is, her first name. Um, We don't have a definitive sense of whether she and and Santa have a family. Right. Um, And we certainly don't really yet know whether she can be trusted to drive a flight. Has it ever been attempted? Like,
0: somebody obviously put together the Rudolph story. Um, Has there ever been a Mrs. Claus story that, you know, just hasn't taken off for whatever reason? Has that even been attempted?
3: Oh, yeah. There, there are many, many uh, Mrs. Claus stories, um, mostly uh, children's books. And Mrs. Claus appears in films as well. Um, and I can give you a couple examples of, of those. Um, but again, often what I find is some of the ploys that were used in 19th century writing um, to kind of build that story are still what we're looking at. So to give a recent example um, of a children's book, um, there's a book by Sue Fleiss called Mrs. Claus Takes the Reins. And in that book, um, Santa wakes up with a cold. He's not able to go out and deliver gifts. So the book is about how Mrs. Claus takes over. Um, Oh, cool. So again, that's kind of a 19th century story, um, but perhaps modernized a a little bit. Um, There's another similar plot line in... um, Well, it's a a 1996 movie, I think. Um, uh, Mrs. Santa Claus is the title. Um, That was a made-for-TV film. It's a musical. It has Angela Lansbury as Mrs. Claus. Oh, she'd be perfect. And essentially... Oh, she's wonderful. Um, (laughs) But... But the idea is, okay, she's been working really hard in the North Pole. She's a part of the workshop, and now she wants to go see the world, and she decides she's just going to take the sleigh out to test a new route that she's developed. And what happens is she gets stuck in New York City. It's going to take a week um, for one of the reindeer's legs to, to heal so he can take her back to to the North Pole. So she has this opportunity to kind of break out a little bit, but... You know, what does she do in that new environment? Well, she helps a suffragette organize a march. So there we are, <laughs> back um, in you know late 19th, early 20th century. The movie is set, actually, in 1910. So, so again, um, it's, it's uh, building on some of those themes. Um, Mrs. Claus is often represented as loving children, so she ends up helping some oppressed uh, child workers go on strike. So, again, doesn't quite get too far out of character. Um, And... There is a happy ending for her. When she gets back to the North Pole, Santa has realized, you know, she's really important. Um, took her, him two days to figure out <laughs> she was gone, but, but once he, he realizes she's not there, he, he misses her, and um, he has prepared a, a special uh, red cape with uh, fur trimming, just like what he wears, and they take off together on the sleigh on Christmas Eve. But Excellent. there, too, you know, this is the, the ending of you know some of the more, more positive 19th century stories. Right, and yeah. So on.
0: Amazing. Just amazing stuff. Uh, such great information. Maura, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you
3: again for asking me to come in and talk.
0: Absolutely. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you as well. That is Mora Ives. Uh, Mora is a professor of English at Texas A&M University, and she was saying, you know, we don't even have a settled version of what Mrs. Claus's first name is. Uh, Larry Sturgeon? He knows, and this is perfect. Her name is Sandra, of course. Sandra Claus. Larry, uh, Laddie, I can't argue with you. I think you've nailed it. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.